of what God has done for us, isn't it? Uh, this morning as we come and we sing praise to our King, uh, sometimes we come and, and we can joyfully join in right away. Sometimes we come and we bring things that have happened with us uh, or, or to us over the past week, and sometimes we come in with some, some cares, right? Some anxiety and fear, whatever. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety, or depending on the translation, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. We're going to sing about that this morning. So as we continue to enter in, as we continue to sing praises and be reminded of who our God is, 
Let's remember that he cares for us and that we can come and as we worship him, we can lay down whatever it is that we've brought with us and be reminded that he is still king. Amen? Amen. Christ alone, in Christ alone, my hope is found. 
Christ alone. Christ alone. of our King Jesus, that we can stand here truly standing unashamed because of his blood that was shed for us, because of what he's done for us on the cross. No power of hell, no scheme of man, nothing God can take us, nothing can snatch us from you and your grasp on us because your love is perfect and it's good. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. It's uh, good to be together. It's good to sing alongside you, to be encouraged uh, in our faith alongside you, to be encouraged by the Word this morning. Uh, If this is your first time with us, we don't believe you're here by accident. We believe God is at work, the same God that we worshiped and and sang to and declared uh, to our own hearts a minute ago is the same God who's drawn our hearts close to Him and uh, stirring up our affections for Him, seeking to transform us for His glory and for our 
joy. Some Crosspoint family news with you. Congratulations to Cody Boehner and Molly Brown. They got married this past weekend, so we rejoice with the Boehner family and the Brown family and looking forward to having Mr. and Mrs. Cody and Molly Boehner with us here in the next couple weeks. First impression teams, you guys want to come up and begin passing out the connection cards. Uh, we hand out these cards every Sunday as a part of our service because we have been, been um, convicted and convinced that we want to shepherd and care for people more effectively as a church. And we don't want to just talk about it, but this is one practical thing that we can do, taking a step toward growing in that. So if you're new with us, fill out the gray box. If you're a regular attender or member, uh, you can fill out the top there. Let us know you're there. If you've got kids back in Sun Chasers, you don't need to mark those down because they've already been checked in. Students, we'd encourage you to fill out your own as well. Make sure you put your last name as well. Uh, to all of us on that card, there are some next steps I want to draw your attention to. Uh, one of them is writing a prayer request. One of our joys as an elder team and a staff is to be able to come alongside you to pray with you and pray for you. And so you can fill that out. And then next steps, baptisms are happening this next Sunday. If that's the next step for you, community groups are launching up this uh, this. Uh, month and so you can mark that down as well and we'll get be in contact to try to connect you to a group and then sun chasers children's ministry is on the card but children's ministry there's volunteer opportunities available back there if you're interested to know more about those uh, what that might entail you can mark that down and becky will be in contact one connection card per household when you're done tear it off slide it in the left pocket and then if you're the last person in that row you can slide it underneath your seat all right, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to the book of 1 Kings. We'll, uh, you'll find it after First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. If you don't own a good Bible, we'd love for you to get one of the free ones at Guest Connections after the service. Let that be our gift to you. Uh, because here's the thing, we don't want you to just open your Bible on a Sunday morning and leave it at that. We want to see us as a church delighting in and growing in our love for the Lord through the Word. And today we begin a new series called Prophets and Kings. It will carry us through to Thanksgiving. In this series, we'll be hitting passages in First and Second Kings, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Jonah, Joel, Jeremiah, and Second Chronicles. Today marks a one-year anniversary or one-year mark of a three-year chronological journey that we've been taking through the scriptures. We started this weekend last year. One of my favorite things for me thus far has been to see how God's word. We, we find out in 2 Timothy that it is living and active, or we find out in Hebrews that it's living and active. In 2 Timothy, we find out that it's breathed out by God. And what I've loved about this journey so far is to see how God's Word, including the Old Testament, is relevant to our lives. It's not only true, but it's relevant. Sometimes we are uh, quick to dismiss large chunks of the Old Testament and say, oh, that doesn't really apply, or that's kind of odd, and that doesn't really fit us. But I've found how encouraging and challenging it's been for my faith over the past year, reminding me of the God that we love and the God that loves us. My desire for us as we um, make our way through the scriptures is that on Sunday mornings, it would just whet our appetite for the scriptures, that we would get into the word the other six days of the week. Because maybe, you uh, maybe you're new to the scriptures and you're like, I never knew there was a book called First Kings. Or maybe you knew there was a book called First Kings, but you haven't really read it before. And so my hope, and that's okay, but my hope is that this simply whets your appetite to say, well, I want to read First and Second Kings and find out what's going on in there. Or maybe you want to jump to John in the New Testament and read about the Gospels and read about Christ there. Either way, that we would be a people who would humble ourselves before the Word, seeking to allow it to transform us and change us. <clears throat> Much of the Old Testament is this narrative telling the story of the Israelite nation that worships the Lord and then falls back into idolatry, who then repent and turn back to the God and then fall back into idolatry. This past spring, we were in the book of Judges and we saw that cycle on display. Then over the summer, we were in First and Second Samuel a lot. And among other things, you saw the righteous leadership of King David. You see the nation walk out of that dark time of the Judges and David unites the tribes of Israel and we see that God um, promises that an eternal king, the king of kings, the Messiah, will come from this family line. And every nation will be blessed as a result. And so the nation of Israel was united under King David. He was a man after God's own heart. In David's death, he appoints Solomon, his son, to uh, take over. 
for him. Solomon is commanded to remember the Lord, remember the Lord's commandments. And as is often the case in the Old Testament, we see that people fail to obey the commandments in that way. And so uh, Solomon uh, follows the Lord, remembers the Lord, remembers his commandments early on, but then later on in his reign and in his life, he strays from those. And as a result, God divides the kingdom of Israel after his death. And so the, the nation that was once united is now divided, a northern and a southern kingdom. And that action is all documented in the first 12 chapters of 1 Kings. So where we find ourselves today is 1 Kings 17 and 18. And in this message series this fall, we're going to be introduced to various Old Testament prophets. Today, Elijah is one of those. The nation of Israel would fall back into this idolatry. That God would raise up an, a prophet to, to turn the people back to the Lord, to call out the sin and to remind them to turn back to God. God raises up Elijah as a prophet in the northern kingdom. That's where we find ourselves today. And a prophet would speak on behalf of God. They would call out sin and remind the people to turn back. And as a result, prophets were not always well received by the people. To this day, when our lives and hearts are confronted with truth, sometimes we bristle at that, don't we? Sometimes we kind of resist that or reject that and say, oh, that's a good truth for so-and-so, but not, not for my heart. And I pray that instead of that, instead of us rejecting or resisting or bristling at, at that, we would be tender toward the Lord's truth in our lives, including this morning. Elijah will ask the people a question in the text that we'll look at today. It's a question that we need to wrestle with, a question I believe the Lord is asking of us today. It's this, how long will you limp between two different opinions? In other words, how long will you ride the fence? How long will you waver and waffle between two opposing thoughts? How long will you dabble in some truth over here and then some lie over here? How long will you worship God over here and then idolatry over here? From Old Testament days to current days, one thing that's always been the case of human nature is our propensity toward relativism. Meaning the idea of, well, if it's right for you, that doesn't mean it's right for me. If it's right for me, that doesn't mean it's right for you. Basically, we try to remove all absolute truth. And we say, well, we can do whatever's right in our own eyes. And that verse is from Judges, but it's as applicable to our day as it was in Judges. And Elijah will be confronting the king and the people in that today. And I believe the Spirit wants to confront in us today as well. Some of us have this one foot in, one foot out. We are keeping <clears throat> our options open and hesitating to commit or obey or trust or repent. Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve two masters. We either will love the one or hate the other or we will love this one and hate the other, but we can't realistically, truthfully, be able to love two masters that are completely opposed to one another. So we can't say, I love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then have this side thing going on that's completely contrary to Scripture or contrary to our love for the Lord. For instance, we can't say, I really love my spouse, but I really love having an affair. That's why in the, in the wedding, oftentimes we'll say, forsaking all others because we're going to forsake all others, because we're going to remain committed to this person for a lifelong, joy-filled relationship. We can't say, I really love Jesus, but I'm also perfectly fine with sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm perfectly fine with sex outside of a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. But I really love Jesus. It's one foot in, one foot out. We're wavering, we're limping is what Elijah would say. We can't say, I really trust God in all areas of my life, but when it comes to money, I think I know more. I think I'll do it my ways. We can't say, I'm grateful for God's forgiveness in my life. I, I'm just grateful for that, and then turn around and say, I can't stand that brother or sister in the Lord. Or nurse this bitter root in us, and yet still in the on the other hand, to say, boy, I'm grateful for his forgiveness in my life. 
in those moments, God is exposing this area where we are trying to limp between two areas. We can't say that we're walking in the light of Christ and then have this dark area of our hearts that, that isn't confessed and brought into the light. I shared last week that my prayer for us as a church and our, our households, our lives, is that there would be this sweet, strong spirit of repentance that would sweep across our lives, sweep across our hearts, our households, our church, that people would confess sin and walk in the light, no longer disagree with the Lord, that, but rather trust in His ways, that people would be saved and take steps of growth and, and, and get baptized and share their faith with others, that where we are crippled between either loving God with all, the, all that we have or loving the idols of our hearts with the same kind of energy that today God would expose that so that we could forsake the idol and so we could trust in Jesus, knowing that in Him we are met with forgiveness and mercy and His truth changes us. We are introduced to Elijah in 1 Kings 17. And as a prophet, he prophesies to King Ahab of the northern kingdom that there's going to be a drought. Neither dew nor rain will occur, he says. And then the Lord tells him to depart from this king and hide because, again, prophets are not well received by kings who want to worship false gods. And King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, instead of leading the northern kingdom to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead lead this kingdom to worship a god named Baal, B-A-A-L. And their leadership has led the people into idolatry. And as a result, Elijah tells King Ahab a drought is going to occur, which shouldn't have come as a surprise. Because God has always, had, had already promised them this, this warning in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and 17, which says, Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So it's not like God is acting without warning here. He's simply following through on what he's already warned them about. He raises up Elijah as a prophet to turn the people back to the Lord. Then chapter 18 opens up with verse 1. After many, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a, in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose any of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it, Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. So Obadiah is one who worships, worships the God of the Israelites, the God of the Bible. And God has placed him in a position of influence and power in this palace, in the court of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who do not worship the God of the Israelites, but instead worship this false god. And Obadiah means servant of the Lord. And Obadiah's faithfulness and obedience saved a hundred prophets of God. He hid them for the Lord. We find that out in verse 4. Elijah is super confrontational. He's just going to go head-to-head with the king, head-to-head with 450 prophets we'll read about here in a minute. Obadiah is faithfully obeying the Lord behind the scenes in very hidden ways. And yet, it's both obedience, it's both faithfulness, it's both worship to the Lord. Sometimes... To this day, we think only those who advance the kingdom of God are only those who are super confrontational, right out there, or only those who quietly serve over here. But here we see this perfect example of God using both to advance his kingdom, the quiet faithful, faithfulness of Obadiah and the bold courage of Elijah. Continuing on in verse 7, as, and as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he, Obadiah, said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hands of Ahab to kill me? 
As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they have not found you. And now you say, Go, tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. Can you, can you feel this angst that Obadiah is having here? He's the quiet, faithful, behind-the-scenes servant. And Elijah is going to go tell him, to go tell the king, I'm here. And he's thinking, I'm going to die as a result of this because you're going to disappear on me, is what he says. And as soon as I have gone from you, from you, he says, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I and your servant have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told, my Lord, that I did, uh, of what I did when, I, when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah's here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So I won't disappear. I won't hide this time. The Lord's not going to call me to hide. The Lord's calling me to confront. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Don't miss this moment of faithful, faithful obedience in Obadiah. Don't miss this. This is not just some trite thing, but this is a, a bold courage move of his to take God's word through Elijah and say, okay, I'm going to go tell, and I'm going to trust it's going to go well for me here. He's not wavering. He's not riding the fence. He's not limping between two. He's going. He's obeying. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab thought the problem was Elijah, that the famine and drought was a result of his prophecy. But rather, it's what he was missing. It was a, it was a result of their own disobedience, their own idolatry as a consequence for that. And he, in verse 18, and he Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So the stage is being set, the showdown between 450 prophets of Baal and one prophet of the one true God. In the Bible thus far, we've seen some confrontations go down. We've seen Moses and the Egyptian magicians. We've seen David and Goliath. And every time, the odds seem very stacked up against God. They seem very stacked up against the God's prophet. And we'll see that again today. Because God loves to work in impossible situations. He loves to work in the midst of those. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So this gathering is taking place. And Elijah the prophet has this crowd. He's going to use this moment to call the people to repent, to follow the Lord, and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Isn't that a good word for us today? And not just for your neighbor, but for my heart and for your heart? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? I'm not sure how the Spirit of, is applying that to your heart and life right now, but I just sense that, that many of us need to consider and think through areas of our hearts and our lives that we are limping between two radically different beliefs. When you limp, it means you hobble. You're, you're not able to move as fast or as effectively as you could if you did not have the limp. Notice when Elijah asked this question, how long will you go limping between two, di two different opinions? Who are you going to follow, Baal or the Lord your God? And there's this haunting silence. Scripture just says, and the people did not answer him a word. They thought by not saying anything, they were not committing idolatry. They thought they could ride the fence continually. But when they chose not to decide, when they chose not to say a word, they were making a choice. If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, 
and you call out to your child or your uh, student or your athlete, you call out their name, and you know they can hear you, and they don't respond at all to your voice, they are most certainly making a choice. They are making a response. Passive-aggressive is just as revealing to the heart as loud and aggressive is, right? By refusing to act or speak, these people were actually revealing something about their hearts that their hearts had turned away from the living God. Their indecision was crippling them. It was causing them to limp. In your faith walk, where are you limping right now? Where are you limping? What do you need to forsake so that you can run with endurance the race marked out for you? So that you might love he who first loved you. So that you might return to your first love. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to them, or given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it, lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So the deal's been done. Here it is. Here's the circumstances of how this is going to go down. And Elijah has given himself no advantage. They get first choice of bull. They get, first, they get to go first. They have 450. He has one. Do you see this tension building? It's high noon at OK Corral, Mount Carmel, right here. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. That's funny. That's, that there's funny. Or he is on a journey. That's in the Bible. I love that. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. You've got to love righteous trash talking. you just got to love it. I don't play anymore, but I should have read that when I was in high school. That would have been awesome. Elijah is exposing that their God is no God at all. The God of the Bible is not limited. Elijah is mocking this limitations of the false God. Idols in our lives are limited. For instance, lust. We think the momentary pleasure of lust will be worth it. But in the end, we find it utterly crippling. Utterly worthless utterly momentary. Our God, on the other hand, is unequaled and, and unlimited. See, we turn to substances, we turn to things to try to numb the pain that we experience in this life. And don't we find that those are, again, limited at best? They're destructive in reality. But in Christ... We are satisfied as with the richest of foods. We come to realize that his steadfast love is better than life, is what Psalm 63 would tell us. In Christ, we come to realize that his love is so great, it's so wide and long and high and deep, that it surpasses knowledge. See, idols are limited. Our God is limitless. Our God is infinite. Idols are distracted. Idols are distracting. Our God is attentive. And that's the contrast that Elijah is drawing here in this moment. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The people just kept trying harder, trying to get their God to listen to them, to pay attention to them, 450 wounded prophets sliced up their flesh in order to try to receive something from their God, trying to gain something from Him. 
See, idols are often exposed in our hearts when all they do is leave us tired and weary and exhausted. When we think that they will satisfy us as with the richest of foods, as Psalm 63 tells us. But in the end, what we find is that they leave us hungry. They leave us unsatisfied. They leave us weary. And we are left, oftentimes, wounded, bleeding. We have scars to prove it. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is never work really hard and then God will pay attention to you. And then God will love you. That's religion. See, some of you have experienced religion that has left you tired and exhausted because you've never understood the gospel of God's grace. Religion says you must do these things in order to get God on your side. But the gospel says that while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. He laid, he laid down his life for us. That while we were still could care less about the things of God, while we were still wandering away, that he as a shepherd was laying down his life for us so that we might return to him as our shepherd. So now we respond in humility and surrender and faith. Jesus has done the work for us on the cross. We trust in that. We receive new life, new birth. We follow him as Lord. See, life is from the God of the Bible. He breathed us into existence. He spoke and the world came to be. Abundant life is in Christ. Idolatry and sin lead to death, lead to weariness. These prophets are cutting themselves, working so hard trying to get their God to speak and pay attention and love them and get something out of them that was never intended to get out of this false God. This is such a stark contrast to Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11, which says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's vastly different than what we see here in 1 Kings. See, that's our Savior. That's the one who was attentive to us to the point of laying down and sacrificing his life for ours. Listen to Psalm 62. The first two verses, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. The ESV translates rest as wait in silence. When I'm at rest, I'm often silent. Especially when I'm on the couch and I've stayed up too late. I'm at rest and I'm silent. When we try and worship anything other than God, we are rarely at rest. And we are rarely silent. We are anxious. We are worried. We are striving. We are, we are mustering up. And we are not resting and waiting in silence. We are often like the prophets of Baal, trying to get meaning and purpose and salvation and love out of things that were never intended to give meaning, purpose, salvation, and love. May you and I be reminded this morning that in God alone is where we find our rest. That's where our soul is at rest. And our God alone is rock, salvation, fortress. So the false God of, of Baal is nowhere to be found. He's off relieving himself. He's off sleeping. He's not attentive. Now it's God's turn. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So again, he is stacking the odds against himself because he knows it's not him that's going to do the work. Notice that Elijah had to rebuild the altar, the place of worship. It had gotten so little use, it had broken down. 
it reveals that the people at that time had forsaken their first love. And maybe today, the Spirit is exposing this heart condition in us that wavers or limps between the truth of God and the lie of the enemy. Listen, take heart and be hopeful. Your love for, your love for Christ can be rebuilt by Christ. An altar is a place of worship. Elijah is rebuilding this altar that had been thrown down and forsaken and weeds had grown up and hadn't even been, been used. So we serve a God who rebuilds and restores and reconciles. It's never too late to turn back to your first love. It's never too late to turn back to the one who first loved you. So at this point in the story, we might be thinking, so what's the point? Is this all just a big spectacle to show up the false prophets? We find, we find out the point in Elijah's prayer, verse 36. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So all this drama had a purpose. It was to lead to changed hearts. It was to reveal who the true God is and who is false, who has all the power, control, and authority, and who is not attentive at all, who is near and who cares and who listens to the cries of his people and a false God that is sleeping on the job. This whole spectacle was to produce repentant hearts in the people. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them all. At the OK Corral, there was always one side that didn't walk away. And so what we see on display there is the justice and the judgment of God. What we see on display there is uh, Proverbs 3.34 and 1 Peter 5.5 5 and, and James 4.6, which says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our God is a just God, and these prophets of Baal have rebelled against the God to the point, to, to our God, to the point of saying, that God is worthless. I want to worship this false God. And so as a result, God has opposed them, and judgment comes. Later in chapter 18, we see that rain results as, uh, rain happens as a result of the repentance of the people. So may our hearts be found humbled to receive that grace, to receive that grace, rather than our hearts be found proud. Elijah prayed in verse 36 and 37 that, that all that their hearts would turn back to the Lord. And then we see in verse 39 that it did just that, that the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God is what they said. It produced repentance. God answers prayer. God is able. The last couple weeks we've been talking about prayerfulness and really a call for us as a church and our households and our lives to grow in prayerfulness, to be more prayerful as a way of life. And one thing I love about today is that we didn't plan this out. We're not that good. So we talk about prayerfulness a couple weeks and then like, okay, what's coming up? Oh, it's Elijah. Hey, look at that. Look how God orchestrated that. Let's be reminded of being prayerful here in the Old Testament. This isn't Dave's idea. I just love how God is leading us to places in Scripture that remind us of the things that He is encouraging us and challenging us and teaching us in as a church. In the New Testament, in James 5, we see James reference back to Elijah in the context of prayer. He says this, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, or as my friend Keith used to say, the prayer... Prayers of a righteous man availeth much. It was the KJV. Always stuck with me. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that, we might, that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah says that a man, that, uh, I'm sorry, James says that Elijah was a man like us. A nature like ours, he says. He was a prophet, but he wasn't a savior. 
He was a speaker of God's truth, but he wasn't God. He had a nature like ours. He was as dependent upon God in that moment as we should be dependent upon God in our moments and in our days and in our years. He was prayerful. And I pray that encourages us in our hearts this morning as we seek to be more prayerful. Before we close in singing and giving our offering, we're going to celebrate communion and remember the cross together. It's a fitting response for today's message. If you're a believer in Christ, you're welcome to take communion with us. J.D. Greer says this in response to this story. He says, false gods push us to mutilate ourselves because we desperately want to win their approval, but only one God was ever mutilated for us, Jesus Christ. Pastor Jonathan Parnell says this, rather than 450 prophets with wounds all over their bodies and their blood gushing out, we see our God hanging on a cross with wounds all over his body, his blood gushing out. Rather than than the horrific scene of fools seeking to hear from a false god, we see the most preeminent display of love when the real God spoke to a world of fools. We were in the dark. We deserved nothing more. And then in unspeakable grace, the sovereign God of the universe reached up to turn on the light. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we move into communion, I'd encourage us to use this time asking God to not only reveal the idolatry of our hearts, reveal that tendency of our hearts to waver and limp and expose that in us, but I also pray that in this moment we would be reminded of the gospel. That God wouldn't just reveal the idolatry, but He would remind us of the grace and the mercy and the Savior who, who laid down His life for that idolatry. This is what we remember in communion. We remember the forgiveness that was found in Christ. Listen to Psalm 32, the first five verses. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted, it, wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Have you ever been there? See, I've been there. I, I read those verses and go, I w- I've been there at different times in my life. Seeking to try to resolve something on my own instead of trusting in the work that's already been done. And then verse 5, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. And then skip into verse 11. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. First impression volunteers, you want to come up now and begin passing out the trays. Uh, The bread and juice are on top of one another in two different cups. Make sure you get both and we'll celebrate. We'll take the bread and juice together as one church family. So let's remember the cross right now. Let's not just ask God to reveal the idolatry. Let's do that. And let's also be reminded of the joy that it is to be forgiven in Christ. Let's take communion now. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Worship team, you want to come back up? Father, we are so, we're so, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for how it shapes us and changes us we're grateful for a story like this for us to look at it and that it's not just some story on a flannel graph god but it's living and breathing it's relevant to our lives god and we confess the areas where we are tempted to ride the fence to limp between two radically different beliefs i pray that as a church and as people lord that we would follow you knowing that you are lord i thank you for the truth of 
it's told to us in Psalm 32 that of the forgiveness is found in Christ. The joy that it is to be found in Him. The joy that it is to be forgiven that in Christ the guilt has been removed. The stain has been removed. You've separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. So may we remember the gospel of God's grace this morning. May we worship you, not only in this next song and in our offering and those kind of things, God, but just this week that we would worship you well, glorify you knowing that you first loved us. Thank you for pursuing us when we, when we were unworthy to be pursued. Thank you for loving us when we were unlovable. Thank you for knitting us together and forming us in, in our mother's womb and fixing your love upon us. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your strength, your justice, and your love, your holiness. We worship you. We exalt you. We forsake all the other things and the idols that we are tempted to pursue. And we love you. We confess that as a church family this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and worship. Father, let it be known today that you are God. 
Lord, that you would come and you would destroy the idols that we have built, that you would turn our hearts back to you, that we would call on the name of our Lord, that we would see Jesus this morning, today, tonight, tomorrow, our Savior who's greater. Amen and amen. Lord, we thank you. As you go, I want you to do two things. Introduce yourself to somebody new. And then if you're able to help this next Saturday morning, we need some help moving food from IGA to uh, the food pantry here in town. We need trucks and some able bodies. So David McCulley's in the back. You can track him down and contact him, all right? Pray for somebody if you can today. Meet somebody new. God bless. Have a good week.